Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Suffice to say, we're now living in a rapidly progressing world where technology is advancing every single day. You surely remember when blockbuster video stores dotted every neighborhood, when we bought everything at shopping malls, and when taxi cabs dominated city transportation. But in less than two decades, Amazon has obliterated the traditional shopping model. Netflix streams entertainment to our devices on demand, and Uber and Lyft have all but destroyed the taxi industry. Change is happening so fast, none of us go to record stores anymore, we've stopped taking photographs using film, and we're just as likely to vacation in a stranger's home than to reserve a hotel room. The obvious truth here is that digital technology has already transformed how people communicate, work, and live, and that change is only likely to accelerate. So aligned to this new reality, our podcast today is devoted to helping you successfully navigate through the new world where technology has brought us. And what you learn here might just ensure you make the right moves for both your career and leadership success. My guest today is Boston College professor Gerald Kane. He's the lead author on the new best-selling book, The Technology Fallacy. And his first assertion is that while most workplace leaders know a digital disruption is happening, most aren't acting according to that knowledge. A huge risk to that delay, of course, is that many managers don't fully recognize how quickly a threat to their business could occur. Working with colleagues from Deloitte Consulting and MIT's Sloan Business School, Jerry surveyed 16,000 people about their experience with digital disruption and how well they believe their organizations are responding. And to learn how technology is changing companies already on the cutting edge, he interviewed thought leaders at Google, Walmart, Salesforce, Marriott, MetLife, and Facebook. So please know going in that we're not about to get all techie here or try to explain the inner workings of blockchain, artificial intelligence, or virtual reality. Instead, we're about to dig into what four years of research uncovered as it relates to digital technology's likely future impacts on leadership, on talent, and on the future of work. Noting that the magnitude of change coming down the pipeline for the next decade or two will likely be even more significant and disruptive, I'm delighted to have Jerry join us to share his informed guidance on how all of us can best prepare and adapt. And with that as a starting point, I welcome you to the podcast, Jerry. Hey, thank you, Mark. I appreciate you having me. Well, I'm very interested in talking to you and just to get things going. We've witnessed the demise, all of us have witnessed the demise of the newspaper, recorded music, photographic film, video stores. We've watched companies and entire sectors being toppled at unprecedented rates and We've seen what you call a digital cyclone create companies like Uber, Netflix, Airbnb, and Amazon. I mean, it's sort of astonishing just to think about how these companies have been created in such a high concentration just over the last few years, really, in our lives. So all this transformation is going on, and in light of all this change, how about start off by defining what you call digital disruption, and then tell us why you believe many of us have yet to do enough to fully prepare for all that's coming. Well, so when we talk about digital disruption in the book, we really talk about how technology is changing the way business is done. And we've titled the book, The Technology Fallacy. And that's because we think that most managers, executives, employees have this mistaken belief that just because 
the changes that are happening to business are because of technology, that the response to them also involves technology. And in fact, what we found in our research is that so much of the more challenging changes, it doesn't have anything to do with technology itself. Instead, it's how we change our organizations, how we change our career paths, how we change our leadership practices to make them relevant to this new digital world. The metaphor we use that you draw the cyclone from is the book, The Wizard of Oz. And so we asked the question, to what extent is the story of The Wizard of Oz about the cyclone? And on one hand, all of it is about the cyclone because we wouldn't have the story if the cyclone didn't come, take Dorothy away to Oz and kick the whole adventure off. On the other hand, none of it is about the cyclone because we really don't care about that part of the story. What we care about is how Dorothy finds her way through this strange new world, how she has adventures, how she meets new friends, how she overcomes and really gets into this journey that she's put on. The same way we talk about technology. How much of the story of digital disruption is really about technology? Well, on one hand, all of it is because we wouldn't be here if this technology hadn't come and is in the process of reshaping our businesses and industries and institutions. On the other hand, none of it is because we don't really care. And, you know, I'm a technology professor. I don't really care about the technology. I care about how we make our way through this strange new world. I care about the new business models. I care about the new employment models. I care about what leadership's going to look like and what talent is going to look like. And only a small part of that is only going to be about using technologies. The other side is really more about how do we lead in this place of rapid change and uncertainty and ambiguity. We're going to get into the whole leadership aspect of this in a few moments, but let me stay on this whole Wizard of Oz metaphor. What's my mindset? What did you find and what do you recommend in terms of all of us approaching, you know, what you're calling a digital cyclone, but the cyclone that's coming our way from a technology standpoint, you're saying we need to really rethink how we run our businesses, how we manage people. The whole aspect of this is going to be much different in the future and even perhaps starting immediately. Yes. But you had a conclusion that this really isn't technology that you need to be thinking about. And I think we need to clarify what you mean by that. Well, so a lot of people, when they talk about organizational digital transformation, in fact, I did the research on the various definitions and almost all of them, often by technology vendors, define it as implementing new technologies to do business differently. I don't think new technology is required and, in fact, may even get in the way of doing business differently. You know, a great example is the insurer Aetna. They realized they needed to develop certain skill sets that their organization was going to need for the coming 15 years years. And they developed a program by which if they're so it's a traditional tuition reimbursement program for their employees. If their employees were willing to go get a degree in one of these 15 areas, whether it be data science or healthcare law or whatever, 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 they would actually reimburse them at three times the rate. And so in some senses, it's such a brilliant and obvious strategy. Why not incentivize your employees to go get the skills that your organization is going to need in the future? How much of that had to do with technology? Well, none of it. It's about a different ongoing learning model for the organization. And we see all sorts of those sorts of examples. Like it's not just about formal education, too. We see companies engaging in what we call tour of duty models, where you, you don't just work your way up the organization and the bureaucratic 
ladder. You work on a project for three years, and then you know at the end of that three years, you moved to do something completely different. And it's that process of moving to uh, different opportunities that forces them to learn new job skills and allows them to continue developing their skill sets. And so I do think one of the core messages of the book is that continual learning is key, not only at the individual level, but also at the organizational level, because the world keeps changing. Disruption is the new normal. If you look back at the last 15 years and see the rapid change, I mean, iPhones didn't exist 15 years ago. And now we, you know, smartphones are disrupting the hotel and the taxi industry. The next 15 years, I argue, is going to be even more disruptive with AI, blockchain, augmented reality, virtual reality, autonomous vehicles. There's so many things coming down the pipeline. We can't possibly understand it all. We can't possibly predict it all. The only right solution is to sort of be lifelong learners and be prepared to adapt to this change that is inevitable and it's coming. So one of the things that you described sort of breaks a paradigm that I think we've seen in business for quite some time, which is this idea that, hey, these people are going to leave. Why should we be spending the money to invest in people? We'll just buy the talent when we need it. Yep. Did you see in your research a shift? Because I'm just like currently, like in the last few days, saw this massive program that Chase is doing where they're investing hundreds of millions of dollars to retrain people for the same idea that you just described it at Aetna. Yep. Accenture, some other companies are doing the exact same thing. Are companies finally saying we need to invest in people? Because that sort of doesn't square with the idea of automating the workplace either, does it? Sure. Well, you know, it's an interesting shift. We actually asked respondents to our survey. And, and incidentally, this research took place over five years. Over that time, we surveyed over 20,000 people worldwide. And then we interviewed well over 100 executives for this research. And when we asked people, how often do you need to update your skill set to remain relevant? Something like 90% of people said, I need to update it at least yearly with about 45% saying we need to update it continually. And yet when we asked to what extent is their organization helping them update their skill set, less than half said they were satisfied with what their organization was doing. So we certainly see some stories where it's happening, but I would argue it's probably not happening nearly enough because the trick is you say, oh, let's just go out and hire new talent. Well, our research basically showed that no company thinks that they have enough talent to compete for the future. Less than half of any company in our sample or any of our respondents, regardless of various levels, said we have enough talent, even the most digitally advanced ones. And then we also saw that employees want to go work for digitally mature companies or digitally advanced companies. So if you think you can go out and just hire the right talent and you're not, you know, you're competing with Google and with Facebook and all of these great employers, there's not a ton of talent out there that has the background you need and you're competing with the big dogs on those. And so really the thing that set aside these more advanced, which we call digitally mature or maturing companies, was developing their own talent because you can't just hire out all the time. This is the future and you need talent models where you're going to be able to sort of refresh your own talent because if not, what's going to happen is these companies like Adobe are engaging in what they call passive recruiting. They go out on LinkedIn, they find people who have the skill sets they want that aren't looking for jobs and they'll come into your company and take the best ones away. And so unless you have 
that ongoing talent refresh model, your employees are risking jumping ship. And interestingly, when we ask them to what extent is your company helping you develop the skill set, the likelihood of them wanting to leave their company within a year dropped by 15 times. So employees were 15 times less likely to say they wanted to leave within a year if their company were providing opportunities to continue developing their skill set. And these were not millennials and these were not low-level employees. These were director and vice president level employees that want to remain relevant for the rest of their career. And, and if you are not providing them opportunities to do that, they're going to find a place where they can. That's really powerful. I mean, that aligns to the Gallup studies that have shown that growth, the perception that I am growing and developing at all times is one of the greatest drivers of engagement. So no surprise. I want you to define passive recruiting. So how can Adobe come in and steal my team? I want to make sure I understand that. Yeah. So uh, I also teach about this at Boston College. And so when I'm in the classroom, I ask people to remember, because there are MBA students in the class as well. It's, it's a hybrid undergrad MBA class. What happened in the old days when you started circulating your resume and your boss found out? Well, usually you got a talking to and said, if you're not happy here, you know, please pack your bags and go. Well, now virtually everybody has their resume circulated 24 hours a day, seven days a week on LinkedIn. And it's done under the guise of networking. But really the focus of LinkedIn is to look for a job without looking like you're looking for a job. And you have plenty of these recruiters who go on LinkedIn and say, these are the types of skill sets we're looking for. And we start searching and we start searching our electronic social networks. And so it is super easy to find the talent you need and poach that talent away from companies that are less mature because it's all out there. It's all searchable. It's all accessible. Glassdoor, you know, these employees know whether you're a good company to work for or not. So much transparency is out there now that to think that our employees are going to be safe just because they're not looking for a job, that's 2005 thinking. A large majority of our respondents said that they had been approached about a job when they hadn't applied for it. So companies are doing this all the time. Thank you. I'm glad we asked that. You have this quote in the book that only the paranoid survive, you know, and so I think sometimes people hearing this will say, well, you know, they're not going to be recruiting my people, but everybody's ripe for this. And then there's another statistic that you have in the book that's Pew Research that shows that while 80% of us believe that some form of automation is going to take over much of the work that's currently being done by humans, you know, maybe in the next decade or so. But only 37% of us believe it's going to affect our jobs. So how do you reconcile those numbers? And going back to this only the paranoid survive, I guess I'd like for you to pin us down and say, hey, you're going to have to take this seriously. Yeah, you know, it's funny. We had a very similar response in the book to a slightly different question, which was, does your organization view technology as an opportunity or a threat? And virtually everybody saw it as an opportunity. And as you grew in this digital maturity scale, companies said it was more of an opportunity. But only 25% of all companies saw it as a threat. And so I think we are having our heads in the sand. And I'm guilty of it, too. And we can get off onto higher ed disruption in a minute. So I teach a class called Emerging Technologies and Digital Business. And we're doing a session on AI. And I asked my students to raise their hand to ask how many of them had thought through 
through to what extent their careers were going to be disrupted as a result of artificial intelligence. And I think three out of 40 people raised their hands. And this is in a class that they should be thinking about it. So I just don't think most of us look far enough ahead. And that's actually one thing we recommend in the book is to do strategic planning for organizations on what I call absurdly long-term strategic planning. And that is thinking of business strategy for 10 to 20 years in the future. And when I ask most executives to do that, they think I'm absolutely crazy. And in some ways they're right. You know, there's no way you can successfully predict the future that far out. But when I do a thought exercise with them, when I say, let's assume autonomous vehicles are mainstream now. Let's assume AI is mainstream now. What would be the strategic implications? And you just start, as you go through this exercise, you begin to envision the massive disruption that is facing it. And oftentimes, I get two reactions to this. One is this realization that we're not doing nearly enough to be ready for the future that's coming pretty quick. Second is, even if we can't predict everything that's going to happen, there are some trends that have been going on for a long time. One of my advisors said, the future is best understood from a running start. And if we look back at those blockbusters, and if we look back at the borders, and we see some of the lessons from that and project that into the future, we can at least get a general direction of where this is going to go. Now, that said, just because automation is going to take over, I don't think it necessarily means that people will be displaced. So I saw a great quote on LinkedIn the other day, which was, AI will probably not replace doctors, medical doctors, but doctors who use AI will almost certainly replace doctors who don't use AI. And so really, I think what the future is, is human-computer partnerships and how we can adapt our skill sets so we can be partners with these technologies, that we can use them effectively in our work, I think is really where we need to be thinking about skill development. Well, in order to do that, so if I'm a doctor using AI, do I have to improve my technology skills? Do I have to understand more about AI or I just need to know how to use the technology as a user, if you will? So what degree of sophistication and education do I need? Because you're talking earlier about, you know, this is all about how the organizations are structured and how people are managed in leadership. And it's less about technology. Right. But now you're sort of getting into a hint that if you're going to be successful in the future, you're going to have to be able to use it. So give us some clarity around what that means. Yeah. Oftentimes when I'm speaking to executives about this, really what I refer to is digital literacy. Yeah. I think it makes sense that you should be able to use the basic tools. You know, my doctoral dissertation was with a healthcare company and they were implementing, this was back in around 2000 and they were implementing one of the first electronic medical record systems in the country. And they had this discussion. If our doctors can't type, what do we need to do? And, you know, I would argue that in this day and time, yeah, doctors do have to know how to type on a computer. They do not have to know how to work either Microsoft Windows or Mac OS. And, and that's the cost of doing business, you know, in today's world. That seems like a low bar, though. That's a pretty low bar. But again, you might be surprised. And I say it's a low bar because I think what's needed is this digital literacy. I have found that when I work with executives, it's often a lot easier to teach the executives the digital knowledge they need than it is to teach the technologists the business and strategy knowledge they need to lead and then the leadership characteristics, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so really, my message is a little goes a long way. If you haven't spent time in the last five years 
doing at least a cursory dive into the state of these technologies and how it's likely to change your business, I think you're well overdue. And sadly, I think most executives haven't. Which technologies are you speaking about? Uh, just general technological trends, you know, whether it's AI, whether it's, and some of it is if you don't do this. I don't want to call it a deep dive, middle dive into these topics. You're sort of at the mercy of the snake oil salesman who are going to say everything, you know, is going to change about these techniques. This technology is going to change the world. And if you don't know enough to sort of know whether, you know, how full of crap or not they are, it's going to be hard to lead. A great example is I don't know how much you know about blockchain technologies. So it's really the basis for Bitcoin. And we're not going to go into the depths of this. Mm -hmm. I absolutely believe blockchain is going to be revolutionary in a number of industries. At the same time, my colleague Kareem Lakani at Harvard argues that it is, but it's going to be 15 to 20 years off. And I don't disagree with that. And so to know that, okay, this is a potentially disruptive, hugely disruptive technology coming down, but it's 10 or 15 years, 15 or 20 years off, there's two risks. One, you think it's never going to happen and we don't need to do anything about thinking about this or that it's happening here and now and we've got to invest a ton of time and energy and money into this. So I would argue that, you know, really the level of technological knowledge that most executives need is just basic working knowledge. And I've never worked with an executive that I have not been able to get up to speed to where they need to be. Now, are they going to go write AI algorithms or do big data analysis? Absolutely not. But can they at least get the concepts and get a vision for how this is going to change business or change their career? Absolutely, that's the case. Do you have any quick guidance on how to acquire some of that information or even a deeper education? Not bits and bytes and coding, but just the big picture about what's happening. I mean, obviously, everyone listening in here is reading something, the Wall Street Journal or, you know, there's a million different things. The Economist, New York Times, they're all covering this in some way, shape or form. But is there a holy grail here that you encourage people to really start digging into this and read regularly? Well, yes. First, go buy this new book called The Technology Fallacy, which gives you all that you need to know. I wish I had the plug bell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I couldn't resist. That's why we're talking, right? The other one that I will give a shout out to one of my colleagues, there's a really great book called Machine Platform Crowd by McAfee and Brynjolfsson, or Brynjolfsson and McAfee. They're both affiliated with MIT. And I've recommended that to a number of colleagues, some of whom are technologically savvy, some of whom aren't. But it's a great sort of primer for artificial intelligence platform strategy and crowdsourcing and such like that. And that's a great place to start. Sloan Management Review, which is who I work for, talk about another plug, have really focused on making their core audience you know, general managers, what general managers need to know about technology. I argue we're in the golden age of education. There's so much out there. And maybe the challenge is how do we sift through this stuff to make sense of it? But there is some good stuff out there. And then there's some crummy stuff. And being able to tell the difference, you know, can be a challenge. Well, the more you invest your time, you start to dissect that. I think that's true. I see a lot of things on relating to leadership that I think are just appallingly bad yeah. guidance, you know, so it's going to be true for everything. So I'm glad I asked that question because I think it's going to help a lot of people. Yeah. And which really gripes me about a lot of this stuff, it's really written to be inaccessible. It's written like, oh, I have the magic knowledge of the technology and you've got to come to me. Whereas I do find like the general business concepts 
you know, are not rocket science. Right. There are a couple of things that uh, you can get up to speed in a book or two. And also more important, I think it's not just to read it on your own, whether it's my book or Brynjolfsson or whatever, but read it among your leadership team and then have a conversation about how this is going to affect the business. Because I think that's extremely valuable. I don't think you need to do this every day. I don't even think you need to do this once a month. But once or twice a year, I think organizations, leaders should do some sort of book study on or just some sort of shared continuing education. Because not only is it important that you learn these things, but I think it's important that people are on the same page so that they can have productive conversations of what their organizations need to do. Totally agree. Great idea. The book you guys wrote is really a guide on how to manage disruption and how to adapt to it, how to thrive in a world that's marked by disruption. So in a second, I'm going to come back and ask you what the big takeaways were as they relate to leadership and managing organizations. But first, tell us how we should be responding to digital disruption in our own careers Beyond the get your head out of the sand, yep. take this seriously and start reading, what would you specifically advise people in early and mid careers yep. to do? to fully prepare and understand this. Yeah, and this is the advice I give to my students, and that is find a job where you can continue developing your skills. I may sound like a broken record, but as I'm talking to undergrad and MBA students about job opportunities, that's one of the first things I ask them. Don't take this job because you like this job. Is this job going to prepare you to get the next job, whether it's within your company or outside this company? And some places like Salesforce is really great at this, finding opportunities within the company to keep growing. Other places, you know, like consulting firms, you know, you do two or three years there, learn some skills and move on. That's really what I like about the Silicon Valley mindset is that it is not a crime to switch organizations and to move around to learn new things. And I do think we need that mindset because I do think this idea of, and we've known the, the idea of a lifetime career is long dead. But, you know, even the half-life of skills keeps changing, that even if the same job exists, what it takes to succeed in that job isn't always going to be the same. And so just making sure you are in a place where you can continue growing and developing is really key. And if you're not in that place, go find a new job or find a place in your organization that you can do it. Or, you know, if you have to do it on your own, do it on your own to develop that skill set so you can find the type of job you want. So just to dig into the leadership component a little bit more, you make the point that being a master of technology isn't going to be what differentiates you. That's kind right. of what you said at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. But you believe that being change-oriented, open-minded, adaptable, and having a transformative vision is going to be far more important than the technical mastery. So going back to your metaphor at the beginning of the Wizard of Oz. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of implying that it's a journey and you have to have a different, you know, sort of context for what's happening here, right? So that you're not just overwhelmed by all of the change, but you're seeing it and you're observing it and you're thinking about it. Yep. But you're also applying this change-oriented, open-minded, adaptable, transformative vision. Talk about how you arrived at those and what all this means. Well, so that's really, and I'm glad you asked the question the way you did, because I don't believe that. That's what the data told me. And this is some of the things that I 
actually really like about this research that we have done. So we did a, a new survey each year. It's been a yearly refreshed that we've sort of we've iterated and we've built on the findings from the previous year. But each year we asked a small number of open text responses. So we asked them what leadership traits are necessary in a digital world. And we just gave them a blank box. And they wrote out their answer. And then I had my research team go through and put those responses into different categories. I mean, they took probably 20 to 40 hours each on each one of these questions. And this leadership question skill was one of those open text responses. And so 3,500 people around the world, it's not my belief, it's 3,500 people around the world saying it's not the technical skills, it's this change-orientedness, it's this open-mindedness that's essential. Because I think one of the realizations that I'm coming to at the end of this research agenda is just the matter of fact that most organizations are built for a 20th century competitive world where the competition was much more stable, where there was much less change in the environment. And now I'm not sure those models are necessarily workable going forward. And we see digitally mature companies doing a lot of different things organizationally. Like they tend to be organized according to cross-functional teams. They tend to push decision-making down further in the organization and equip leaders to make, have a lot more autonomy on how they achieve their objectives. They do more experimentation and iteration. And those are things that traditional companies really struggle with. Because in some ways, 20th century business was focused on was how do we drive variation out of the process? How do we make sure everything happens perfectly? Six Sigma, you know, three errors per you know million or whatever it is. Whereas now the challenge is much more about how do we keep trying new things so we can keep learning how to do business differently? Because there is no silver bullet. There is no magic answer. It's all about going back to Dorothy. It's all about finding our way through the strange new world. And the only way we can do this, uh, we use this quote in the book from a Greek philosopher, it is solved in the walking or solvitur ambulando, that there is no answer ahead. You've got to walk and figure it out. And you've got to sort of figure out how you're going to adapt your organization and your career and your leadership style to this new environment. And yet in this failure is not an option mindset, in this everything has to be perfect at Six Sigma, that's really hard to do in that environment. And so a lot of it is about changing our very organizations and the, the very business values that we had last century and figuring out new ways to operate in this very turbulent, changeable world that we don't always know what the future is going to be like. So you've done a really good job of answering the question that I promised to come back to, which is you know, what were your big takeaways from a management and leadership standpoint? And I'm totally open to having you add more to that. But let me just pin this one piece down, though, in this idea that you know, you've know you got the Six Sigma motivation in the 20th century mentality. What's your advice? What did you learn? Like, what can our audience know and learn from you in terms of how they can make that cultural shift and get people to be less on the perfection side of the spectrum and more on the experimentation side. Yeah, and the key is don't do it all at once. The biggest challenge is to get started. The biggest challenge is to start having those conversations. Start small, start with one team, start with, actually in the book, the last chapter of the book is very much a how-to guide for how to get started. And what we recommend in the book, there's 
We have something called the Digital DNA Survey, where we have employees evaluate the maturity of their organization on a 23-point scale. And it's important if you're doing this with executives to not just bottle this up in the executive team, because our research over five years almost uniformly says that senior executives have a very different and much rosier view of how the organization is functioning in the digital world than do employees further down in the organization. So the first step is get a sense of where you are. And then you find three to five things that you'd love to just change in a little way. You know, we go into the principles of agile software development in the book, and you can apply those principles to organizations. And you start in, okay, what is one thing we could make a meaningful improvement on in a six to eight week initiative and try? And then at the end of that, you evaluate how well you did, whether you learned, what you learned, and then try something else. And so it is about these small experiments, but I would caution that it can't stop with small experiments. Once you start learning, it ha- because what we see is a lot of early stage companies, a lot of immature, uh, digitally immature companies, they're happy to experiment as long as it doesn't affect how they actually do business. The really successful companies experiment and then use that to drive change across the organization. And what was really one of the things that was heartening to me is I was talking about the book at an earlier stage to a large Fortune, you know, 50 company. And we had a lot of, uh, you know, mid-level executives. And one of them came up to me and said, you know, my biggest takeaway is that I've never thought of myself as a digital leader because I'm not a C-suite employee. I'm not a senior manager, but I realize I can do a lot. You know, he was a team leader to create a more digitally friendly environment and culture just within my team. And that's what you need is that going back to your thing about what's the key insight And that is, it's much more a question about mindset. In fact, we asked the question in this year's research, which is actually unable to make it into the book because it's too fresh. And we asked, is your organization going to be in a stronger or a weaker position in 10 years because of digital trends? And then an open question, why? And what we found was that respondents who thought their company was going to be stronger said, we're going to develop the skills that are necessary. Those that thought they were going to be weaker said it's market forces, you know, markets changing and there's nothing we can do about it. And so Carol Dweck, Mm -hmm. the Stanford psychologist, talks about fixed and growth mindset at the individual level. And the fixed mindset is basically skills are inherent and largely your success or failure has to do with outside forces. Whereas a growth mindset says I can develop the skills I need and success is a result of hard work. And that's what I see in those results is those who say we're going to be in a weaker position say we're going to be there because it's not our fault. It's the market. It's being done to us. And I hear that all the time. You know, Wall Street won't let us make these changes. That's astonishing to me. These are top leaders. You're talking to a large company and the top leaders are saying, hey, nothing we can do about it. Right. I mean, talk about not getting Carol Dweck's message, right? Right, exactly. It's a, it's always Wall Street's point. And then my response is, I've met plenty of leaders in public companies that are able to do this. So some of it, they're using it as an excuse. Some of it, they just, there's all sorts of reasons. You know, and a great story that we feature them in the book is Walmart. 
you know, the Walmart CEO went to the board and said, we need to make these changes because if we don't in 10 years, we're not going to be here because of the changes we're seeing. And the board was supportive and said, we know this may lead to some short term stock hits, but it's worth the investment in the future. And I would argue the Fortune One company not only needs to do it because they're worried about whether they're going to be around or not, but then can do it, whether they're going to be successful or not, who knows, but they've done some really remarkable things in such a large organization. I would argue any Anybody can do it. And you need that sort of leadership that's going to say, I want to prepare my organization for the future, not just I want to run out the clock. I want to retire. I want to, you know, whatever. On a note to self, I don't think I'd want to work very long for an organization where the leaders are saying, you know, we kind of think we're going to be weaker (laughs) due to digital, right? Absolutely. I mean, you see the future coming and you're saying, yeah, we're not going to look too good. That's kind of a terrifying assessment, right? Absolutely. Where's the optimism? So, so very glad I asked the question. And this is exactly why, by the way, I wanted you to come on because your book boils it all down that it really does permeate the entire organization. It is at the individual manager level. It's not just something that's going to be top down, that's going to be under the hood that you don't need to worry about. Everybody needs to worry about it. So one thing when I was reading, I was thinking, I wonder if because of all this research that you know something we don't know. So I'll set it up this way. We know the Googles and the Amazons are massively and constantly reshaping the business landscape. Do you have a crystal ball? Can you give us a glimpse into what industries or other innovative industries, organizations are about to disrupt something that's not seen by many people? Well, I'll give you the cop-out answer because we actually asked this question. We asked, to what extent is your industry likely to be... No cop-out answers. No, that's unacceptable. Well, no, (laughs) because we asked, to what extent is your industry likely to be disrupted because of digital technologies? And 87% of our respondents said, across almost every industry, said, we're going to be disrupted to a moderate or great extent. And that goes back to the only the paranoid survive. If you don't think your industry is ripe for disruption, you're fooling yourself. And so it's what can we do as an organization, as an industry, to make sure we're the ones that disrupt ourselves or that we're at least able to come back and keep up and do this? Because if you're sitting on your laurels, a great example, I had a a friend of mine works for a poultry IT company, and I don't remember the exact term, but basically... Chickens? Yeah, he develops software for chicken farmers. Mm -hmm. And he's been working there for 20 years and, you know, helping optimize the the feed, the temperature, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So he's been working there for about 20 years. And he said, about six months ago, we did a, a weekend project where we experimented with implementing AI into our models. And he said... Six months later, AI is blowing away everything we've done for the past 20 years. And we are at such a higher level of precision just from that weekend project than you'd ever imagine. And so what I tell my students, and the students love this because I said, you know, if your boss is saying we're not going to be disrupted, you tell them the chicken farmers are more advanced than we are uh, in this. And if the chicken farmers are using AI to get ahead and to disrupt, you better believe your industry is next. And so it's that paranoid, that paranoid trend and that paranoid tendency that it's coming for all. Because who would have thought in the taxi industry that smartphones would be the disruptor? And yet it's very clearly happening. Well, what about in your industry, in collegiate education? 
What about in financial services, banking? You mentioned blockchain 20 years from now. We're not going to be exchanging cash. We may not even be using credit cards any longer. What's your crystal ball say about that? Well, the good news is I think financial services is actually getting it much quicker than higher ed is. The other class I lead is something called Tech Track, where I take 24 BC students and we go to either to Silicon Valley or to New York and we tour technology companies, large and small. And we were out at Goldman Sachs and Goldman says, we are not a financial services company. We are a technology company. And I laughed it off because everybody's referring themselves as a technology company these days until I learned that 30 to 35 percent of Goldman hires are all software engineers. And so a lot of these companies are really doubling down and insurance is starting to get up to speed, financial services, your JP Morgan just launched a JPM coin. They're recognizing and they want to be their own disruptor. Higher ed is another story. I think the key is going to be, I think this whole model of educating, so model one, which is educating 18 to 22 year old students is just outdated. I think that's important. But to stop there and say, oh, now you're educated, I think universities need to step in and support this ongoing learning model. And it needs to do it in a way that's not a two-year degree program. It needs to create an environment where it's going to support the ongoing learning of its alumni in ways to keep their skills fresh. And I think we, and believe me, I preach this all over the place. And I think we as higher ed need to start moving into that model or someone else is going to come and do it. What about, you know, coming and living on campus for four years? Is that going to change? Are we going to see more hybrid education, maybe two years on campus just to get established with your professors? What's that going to look like? You know, I think for better or worse, not to get into social commentary, I think we're going to end up with a bifurcated system. I teach at a four-year residential institution, and I do think it that, that focuses on transfer formative development of the student. And there's a lot of value to be had in that. And I don't want to throw that out. And that's a fabulous experience for those who can afford it. I do think the other side of education is, can you afford that really sort of in-depth formative experience? And the bottom line is a lot of people can't. So I do think there's going to be a place for the formative private schools where the people who can afford to pay are going to pay and it's going to be more of a, not not a finishing school, but it's going to be sort of the development of the person. I think there's going to be another set, and I think this is going to be the role of state schools going forward, is you move towards a model like my alma mater, Georgia State or Arizona State, where you sort of do the no-frills education, where like we're not going to invest in all of this on-campus fancy dorms and fancy exercise facility. We're just going to optimize on delivering the best possible education for the lowest possible price to the most people. And I think there's room for both of those approaches in the marketplace. And whether there's some hybrid in between, who knows? Cool. Thank you. This is a leadership podcast. So I want you to tell us how we managers can help our own employees prepare. So we've already talked about what managers themselves need to do for their own careers. We talked about what managers and leaders need to do in order to help their organizations get ready. But what can we do to help the individual employee and how do we get their heads out of the sand if they're there? Yeah. 
Well, you know, what I find in the research is a lot of employees' heads aren't in the sand. They know this and the organization isn't letting them stick their head out. So some of it is about being a permission-giving organization. For those who do want to develop these skill sets, make sure you give them the opportunity. And I think if you create these opportunities, I think you'll find more people stepping up. And then the second is probably the likeliest first step is to get our own head out of the sand. Recognize where we need to grow as leaders, where our organization needs to grow for the future, and then create that environment. And I suspect what you'll see, and we go to this in the book, I think you'll find 30% of the people, and whether these are the right numbers, who knows, 30% of the people are always going to want to be learning, growing, they're hungry for this knowledge. 30% of the people are never going to want to change. It doesn't matter what you do. Those people are just going to want the status quo. And then 40%, that middle sort of group that's going to be the plurality, is going to go one way or the other depending on the organizational culture. And what you can do as leaders is create that culture of learning, create it where it's valued, create the opportunities so that 40% moves from being change resistant to being sort of change oriented. And that's probably the biggest. If you can change that culture so that you know people recognize, and this goes back to some psychological research in the Prisoner's Dilemma game that found that people played the game very differently whether they were told they were playing the Wall Street game or the community game. And that 40% in the middle behaved very differently, whether it's selfishly or altruistically, depending on simply the game they thought they were playing. Likewise, Jim March, the famous Stanford business school professor, had this concept of exploration, exploitation, or leverage the business or invest in the business. And I think 30% are always going to want to be exploring. 30% are always going to want to be exploiting that 40% in the middle. You just need to convince them that ongoing learning and create an environment where they will believe that the game they're playing is about developing skills for the future. And it's a challenge. It's, it's really a challenge to keep the lights on and also develop for the future. But that's the challenge that most organizations are facing. Well, that's one of my big takeaways from our conversation is that a culture of learning is going to become, if it hasn't already, a huge differentiator in terms of whether or not companies are able to attract and retain great people. This is a big shift. It is. And it's going on. The scary thing is when it starts to develop momentum. And you don't have good people and then you can't hire good people because it's not a good culture and it becomes a death spiral. And so I think changing the culture before that happens is key. A few episodes ago, I asked Tomas Chamorro to name the company that he most admired. And he said it was this clothing company called Zara. And then I read it again in your book. This is a company I'm totally unfamiliar with. Yep. But you said that they were a brilliant disruptor because of their use of technology to pin down everything we've been talking about. Tell us about them and what we can learn from them. Yeah, so Zara is a Spanish clothing retailer, and they pioneered what's called fast fashion. And what makes them really great is they did not invest a ton in technology. They just recognized they could use technology to sense fashion trends faster. So basically, if people, not only did they look at what was selling, but they also looked at what people came in to the store wanting but they didn't have. And as they collected that data across all their stores, they could then figure out. So most of the, the mass clothing retailers you know, have to predict fashions multiple seasons in advance to do bulk orders. Whereas Zara said, we're going to collect the data and we may not produce in bulk, 
but we're not going to have sales because we're only going to produce what people want and we're only going to produce them in the volume that it wants. And so they were able to use just basically PDAs. You know, they, they were iPhones for their employees to sort of record what people were wanting and record what people were selling so they could get a better sense of market trends. And they didn't do the bulk Chinese development. They developed their stuff in Spain, but they were able to turn around so much more quickly because of this data that they collected that they had a much better sense of supply and demand and could tailor to customers' desires much more quickly. I have a property that I'm doing alone, and I won't name the online lender, but it's been anything but impressive. Sure. And what I'm noticing is that they've become so technology-driven that it's almost inhumane in the way that they treat you. It's like this yes. incessant drive for documentation and, you know, we need this by Wednesday and you're not talking to a real person. Right. And then every once in a while you'll get an email saying, hi, I'm your coordinator and I want to make sure everything's going well. And you know that that's mass produced too. Yes. So what's the other side of this? How can this go wrong? Well, sure. And that's why we focus on it's not about the automation. It's not about the technology. It's about delivering business value. And some of it absolutely is about efficiency. And, you know, let's not fool ourselves. If there are times when I don't want to talk to a human, I just want to call in and press one and four and get my answer to the question. On the other hand, also sometimes when I call in and I need to talk to somebody and you're going to make me go through 25 different menus before I can figure out how the heck to get a hold of somebody. So it's really about sort of how do we use the technology? to create transformative business practices that not only create value for ourselves, but also for our customers and our employees. And so, you know, technology is great, but if you're not doing technology to deliver a better business experience, you're doing it wrong. Perfect. I've seen this quote, I think actually in Thomas Friedman's own book, but you mentioned it and I want to read this to my audience yep. and then have you tell me what he said. So this is Thomas Friedman, three-time Pulitzer winning journalist and author. Yeah, smart guy. Very smart guy, right? And he sort of, you know, summarizes your book in this one quote. He says, we used to work with our hands for many centuries, then we work with our heads, and now we're going to have to work with our hearts because there's one thing machines cannot, do not, and never will have, and that's a heart. Yeah, and I sort of go back and forth on this because, in fact, I agree with what Friedman's saying, but not in the way he is saying it, if that makes sense. So here he's talking about basically caring professions and that you're never going to be able to have, you know, a robot that can be an effective nurse because we want that human contact. And in fact, a lot of the research is showing that they can. You know, we, yeah, and we're much more likely to be able to, you know, we want to talk to Google rather than a psychologist. We're much more likely to open up if we're opening up to a robot that we don't think is going to judge us. And people can get comfort from machines. What we don't get, and this is where I would use the word heart, is empathy. People are going to be uniquely qualified at figuring out as this digital disruption happens and as things become automated, they're going to be uniquely qualified at figuring out what is the right response as we struggle with these things. Things, what are the opportunities that they create as well? And what are the opportunities in terms of the human experience that these new technological environments are going to create? And I think that's where some opportunities are. You know, a great example, not as touchy-feely as I might like, but, you know, Best Buy. 
So Best Buy has succeeded in competing against Amazon because they realized with some of these big ticket purchases, people want the freedom to touch and to feel and to see and to experience and to ask questions before they make those big purchases. And they've succeeded as a result of that strategy. So part of what people are going to do is find out where the technology is not meeting the human experience. Like your loan example just a second ago, where is that letting down and what opportunities can that create? Another great example is small town bookstores are also thriving again because they can provide a lot of community experience that Amazon will never be able to create. And so people are better equipped to figure out what the next steps are as a result of digital disruption than AI ever will be. Glad I asked. Yep. Jerry, I'd like to take a quick break from our discussion and transition into a podcast tradition we call the Heartbeat Round. So to give us a little more personal insight into the biggest influences of your life, I'm going to ask you a few more questions. But unlike the other ones I've asked so far, these all require a quick, instinctive and brief answer. So in other words, your goal is to answer each of these questions in a heartbeat. Are you game? I'm game. <laughs> all right. Here we go. A cultural value every organization should have. Experimentation and risk tolerance. One book that greatly shaped who you'd go on to become. A Mindset by Carol Dweck. Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading. I'm going to twist it up and just say audible.com. I've been a member for 15 years. One big way four-year college educations are likely to be disrupted. A move towards a focus on lifelong learning. The life lesson you wish you'd learned much earlier in life. Failure is an option and it's not necessarily a bad thing. The trader behavior that derails the most leadership careers. Short-term thinking. Skill improvement you're working on right now. Actually trying to learn a little bit more about artificial intelligence and the algorithms. The company or organization you expect is going to bring the most future market disruption. One we have not even heard about today. You think it's just, it's an outlier. Somebody's just going to come in and blow us away? Well, so I do this tech trek trip and students ask me, what do you think is going to be the best visit? I said, the best visit is going to be one that I don't even know because it's always a surprise. Like we visited a company called Neuro, which is an autonomous vehicle delivery company, just doing amazing things. Another one was Winolo that I'd never heard of. It's like a job platform for blue collar workers and you know has just huge opportunity for disruption. And this is my job and I had not heard about these companies. And so I'm always excited because they're so so much happening. And I think the big one, it's not even on my radar yet. And this is my job. Great. Your synonym for the word heart. Passion. The most profound piece of advice you've ever received. Just be sure you're doing what you want to be doing in your career when you turn 40, because nobody cares before then. The quality you most admire in other people. Self-awareness and humility. One subject you believe most of us would be wise to bone up on. Digital literacy. <laughs> A quote that captures your life philosophy. Do or do not, there is no try from Yoda. Yoda. And the most greatly undervalued leadership practice. Empathy. Awesome. These were wonderful. I just love this segment because, like you said, in the one question that you elucidated on, the answers come from places that I just don't expect, and yours did. So thank you very much. Awesome. I'm glad. I always like when I surprise the host. <laughs> Great. In good ways, that is. <laughs> well, you very much did. So thank you. Yep. We're getting close to winding down here. But before I let you go, I'd like to turn the stage over to you. This is sort of our tradition and ask you if there's any final insight that we didn't cover that you really want to make sure that 
we cover with the audience. Nope. In fact, I close all of my interviews that way, which is often the best questions. But I think we've had a productive conversation and I think we've hit on the major points. Here, here. Well, thank you. On behalf of my audience and myself, we cover a lot of ground and you've shared some really, really wonderful insights. So thank you very, very much. It was an honor to have you on. I appreciate it. I think it's been a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Take care. Before we close, I'd like to ask you to do me a quick favor right after we sign off. I happen to notice that we have just 14 podcast reviews on iTunes, a rather paltry number that falsely represents how many people are actually listening in. And I hate to say it, but reviews like these are especially helpful, so I'd be extremely grateful if you'd give us a quick grade and even leave a few comments. In the meantime, I'll keep working hard to bring you truly compelling guests and conversations. I want to thank my supporting crew, my webmaster, Randy Yant, my sound engineer, producer, and magician, Eric Oz, and I also leave you with two final thoughts. My brother passed away this week, and in reflecting on my loss, I'm reminded that life is incredibly short. I'm also reminded that what we remember about people who pass away from our lives are almost exclusively the interactions we had with them. And were they kind? Were they generous? Were they thoughtful? and supportive and there for us when we needed them. Poet Maya Angelou famously said that what we humans always remember about other people is how they make us feel. And today, I'm reminded there are a few greater truths. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now, but not before I leave you with my final and constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. Until next time. Mm-hmm.